Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. I see uh, the attendees coming in on both Zoom and Facebook. We're gonna get started right now. Thank you for joining us today for our firm's June virtual first Friday free call-in. This morning, Beth has a conflict on her schedule, so she can't be here. And today's questions will be answered by Mulcahy Law Firm PC attorney, Hayden DiLorenzo. I'm Morgan Ronimus. For those of you who do not know me, I'm a senior paralegal with our firm and I've been with the law firm for 11 years this September. Real quick before I turn this over to Hayden, friendly reminder that if you haven't already done so, please submit your first Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then Hayden will answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. If for some reason we unintentionally skip over your question or we do not answer it live, please know that we will email you your answer. Due to the large volume of questions we receive every month, friendly reminder that this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. And if you are going to submit a question during the live session, please make sure you include the name of your association and your current role when you submit the question. That will help Hayden answer your question. I now welcome Hayden to provide a quick update on the 2022 legislative session and jump right into our questions. Hayden, real quick, I would like to wish you a happy one-year work anniversary. That really crept up on us, huh? It really did. Hayden has officially been with the firm for one year this month. Hayden, you make an incredible teammate. And I know we all look forward to many more milestones in the years to come. Hayden, without further ado, take it from here. Awesome. Thank you so much, Morgan. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. For those that joined us last month for our first Friday virtual event, I provided a recap on what's been going on in the Arizona legislature. So let's go ahead and pick up where we left off. Just as a reminder, Two bills relating to community associations have been signed into law. And so those are going to be the first one, HB 2131. And this states that if a planned community's documents allow natural grass on a member's property after the time of developer control, the association may not prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. And then the second one is going to be HB 2158 which allows members to display association-related political signs not to exceed nine feet, nine square feet, excuse me, on an HOA or condo member's property and gives HOA and condo members the right to peacefully assemble on the association's common area. So these two bills will become law 91 days after this legislative session is over. And there's also a third bill that we are closely monitoring and that we anticipate will likely be signed into law by Governor Ducey very soon. And this bill is going to be HB 2010, which is related to first responder flags. So this bill applies to planned communities and condominiums alike. And if, or at this point when, 
it's signed into law, it will amend ARS 33-1808 for planned communities and ARS 33-1261 for condominiums. So regardless of what a planned community and condominium association documents state, a planned community or condominium association cannot prohibit the outdoor display of a first responder flag. This flag, however, may incorporate the design of one or two other first responder flags to form a combined flag, a blue star service flag or a gold star service flag. Please note that this is in addition to the five flags that are already covered under the current statute. So the bill defines first responder flag as a flag that recognizes and honors the services of any of the following. So first is going to be law enforcement, and that is limited to the colors blue, black, and white. The words law enforcement, police, officers, first responder, honor hour, support hour, and department, and the symbol of a generic police shield in a crest or a star shape. And the second is going to be fire departments, and that is limited to the colors red, gold, black, and white. The words fire, fighters, FD, first responder, department, honor hour, and support hour, and the symbol of a generic Maltese cross. And then third and last is paramedics or emergency medical technicians, and that is limited to the colors blue, black, and white. The words first responder, paramedic, emergency medical, service, technician, honor hour, and support hour, and the symbol of a generic star of life. So as I mentioned, we are closely monitoring this bill. The Senate is not in session today, but we think HB 2010 may be signed into law as early as next week. We'll continue to monitor and share news with you once it's signed into law. And you can also find this weekly updated summary, plus a full analysis of the two bills we've already discussed, which have been signed by Governor Ducey, on the homepage of our firm's webpage at www.mokehilawfirm.com. And we'll also be sharing this with you on Zoom and Facebook Live now. Okay, so at this time, I think we'll go ahead and move on into our questions. The first question is coming from a board member. The question says, we are in the process of amending our CCNRs and would like to find out if we need to put a clause in that talks about state code future changes. Okay. One of the most common reasons that we see for amending association documents is to comply with changes in federal and state law. It's not necessary to add a section to your amended CCNRs talking about future amendments and the ability of the board to unilaterally amend the documents when there are changes to the law. However, some HOA boards are opting to do this. If your association is a condo, further evaluation is needed because an amendment of this nature may not be possible under the Arizona Condominium Act. So that's something to keep in mind. We also have a cheat sheet called Amending Association Documents and Implementing Rental Restrictions that we'll be sharing in the chat box and on Facebook Live. And this cheat sheet shows how to successfully amend an association's documents using a helpful five-step plan. And also our next Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA and Condo Academy on Tuesday, June 21st at 11 a.m. will be on the topic of amending association documents. So we'll be discussing the new Supreme Court case in Arizona regarding amendments to CCNRs. And we'll also give tips on how to successfully amend an association's documents. So be sure to tune in for that upcoming virtual seminar on June 21st. Okay, next question is from a committee member. What is the state law and best practices regarding background checks for board applicants? Okay, so there is no state law requiring background checks on HOA or condo board applicants. There are a number of online resources for anyone to conduct background checks if that's something your board wants to do. However, in my experience, unless there's a reason prompting a board to do background checks, 
it would be unusual for a board to do this on board applicants. Okay, next question is going to be from a board member. What is the impact of the Callaway decision on HOAs? So our firm is aware of and has closely evaluated this new case. Our firm tries not to overreact or overcorrect when there is fine tuning to legislation or case law. Our best recommendation is that if you're currently thinking about amending your CCNRs, this case isn't going to be a stop sign for you. It's basically just a good opportunity for reflection where you'll want to make sure that you're structuring this in such a way that the amendment, if challenged, will prevail in a court of law. So our firm is always happy to assist your association if you're in that position. And if you want some advice on how to best limit your liability and put language in your amendments that will protect the association in the event that somebody does try to challenge any amendments that you make. Okay, and also be sure to tune in to our next Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA and Condo Academy on Tuesday, June 21st at 11 a.m., where we will be discussing and carefully examining the new Supreme Court case in Arizona regarding amendments to CCNRs. Okay, our next question is also from a board member. Our HOA has received an owner request for approval of APS installation of solar panels on the roof of her condominium unit. Our CCNRs permit the roof installation of solar panels, but the owner is responsible for removal and reinstallation of the panels when the HOA maintains, repairs, or replaces the roof. The owner has signed a contract with APS as the homeowner, but she does not own the roof. She owns a fraction of the roof. She does not control the roof, so she would not be able to fulfill some of the APS contract requirements. How should we respond to this request? Okay, good question. So solar panels are a tricky situation because HOAs can't effectively prohibit the installation of or use of a solar panel on an owner's property. I need to know a little bit more about what the APS contract is requiring before I could comment on this. But at first glance, I'd suggest that your association talk with our firm about this matter a little more in depth. Some things I would need to review would be the APS contract and what exactly the owner wants to install on the association common areas. This may or may not be possible, but I'd need to do a little further review and carefully look at these things to help the association navigate this problem. So feel free to reach out to us on that. And I believe Morgan will be sharing the cheat sheet on solar energy devices now. Okay, our next question is also from a board member. We have a homeowner who has started to fly a Let's Go Brandon flag below his American flag. Is there anything that the HOA can do about this? So first and foremost, this flag is obviously not a flag which state law allows an owner to fly on a property in an HOA or condo under Arizona law. It's difficult for me to answer this question without reviewing the association's documents as it really depends on what the association's documents say regarding the display of flags and also what the documents say about the exterior appearance of the property. But assuming that this owner is in violation of the association's documents and this is an unauthorized flag, we would suggest first contacting the owner directly to notify them that the flag is a violation of the association's documents. And if that doesn't resolve the matter, we'd recommend having our firm send a violation letter requesting that the owner cease from violating the association's documents. And then just a friendly reminder that it's important that associations are treating all unauthorized flags in the same manner. So for example, if an association is allowing the display of one unauthorized flag, then the member displaying the Let's Go Brandon flag should not be singled out. And then one more point on the topic of flags in anticipation of Governor Ducey likely signing HB 2010 into law, related to first responder flags, we definitely recommend that associations not take any action at this time related to first responder flags. 
effective immediately, we would treat first responder flags as one of the flags that an association cannot prohibit. So our next question is from a board member. With regard to raising our assessments to the consumer price index, our CC and our state, annual assessments may not be increased above an amount consistent with the percentage, if any, in the consumer price index without affirmative vote of two thirds of the association voting in person or by proxy. This has hampered the board from raising men raising enough money to address maintenance needs and build the reserve. Is there a way to work around this so the assessments are keeping up with inflation and the maintenance needs are met? So the only way to change this is going to be for the association to amend their CCNRs. The CPI is relatively high right now. So you may want to look into that because you may be surprised at how much your association might be able to raise the assessment due to the increased CPI. So that's something to keep in mind. Okay, next question is going to be from a board member. If a board member changes his or her mind and no, long, no longer wants to support a decision that was made by the majority vote of the board, may this board member publicly speak against or resist or obstruct the moving forward on board decision? So this is a little bit of a tough call. The board member is also an owner. So I suppose as long as this person is speaking as an owner, the owner has the right to express their opinions regarding the board's decisions. But this is also a really fine line because the owner is also a board member. And really, this board member should be acting in the best interest of the association and not doing something like this. So I would just navigate that carefully. Next question is from a board member as well. We have a resident who has foam foil board on her front windows. One panel has degraded and looks even worse. How do we make her take down this foam board? So one of the biggest problems we see in community associations is obtaining owner compliance with association documents. If the association has already sent notice to this owner and the owner has not corrected the matter, we suggest the matter be turned over to the association's attorney for to send a violation letter. If the matter continues to go unresolved, the association has options, including filing an injunctive relief lawsuit or filing a petition with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. And we will also be sharing our enforcement cheat sheet now for a little more help with that. Okay, our next question is from a board member. Short-term rental basics for A, enforcement of HOA minimum rental periods, for example, 30 days, and B, charging higher monthly assessments for short-term rental properties if it can be done legally in AZ. Okay, short-term rentals are certainly a hot topic in Arizona. And they present a unique enforcement challenge due to their temporary nature. First of all, I believe that your question is asking if an association can charge a higher monthly assessment for a member that rents the property on a short-term basis. Arizona law does not allow for this. So here are just some basics on rentals and, and HOAs and condos. Arizona law, ARS section 33-1260.01a, and then also 33-1806.01a allows an association to restrict a member from using the property as a short-term vacation rental, so long as the rental time restrictions are in the declaration. So here are some enforcement suggestions if owners are violating rental provisions in your CCNRs. And just remember, the association does not have a contractual relationship with tenants. So the best way to get compliance with the tenants is to contact the owner rather than the tenants in these situations. So the first suggestion that we would have is to document all tenant issues and provide evidence to the landlord via letter. We'd also recommend filing police reports when necessary, such as if there are unruly parties, nuisances, etc. 
We also suggest picking up the phone and calling the landlord or hiring our firm to do this. Um, We're certainly happy to help to get these landlords to bring their tenants into compliance. And then additionally, you could find the owner for their tenant's behavior. We find that the best way to get a tenant to comply with the association's documents tends to be to assess fines and do it and continue to assess fines until the law is in compliance. And then as a last resort, there's always the option to file a lawsuit or an Arizona Department of Real Estate complaint. And then depending which city you're located in, you may be able to seek help from your city related to short-term rental issues. Cities are cracking down on this right now, and we expect there will be new laws from the state in the future as short-term rentals remain a widespread problem throughout the state. And we've also got a cheat sheet on rental properties and also some blogs we've done on short-term rentals. So you'll be able to find those in the chat. All right. So the next question is from a board member. If you haven't already addressed it, your opinion and any anticipated challenge to the ruling that HOAs cannot change original CCNRs unless 100% affirmative vote. In other words, can or for example, cannot issue a rule against less than 30-day short-term rentals. So again, our firm is aware of this case and we've closely evaluated it. I believe that's what you're referring to is the Callway case. Our firm again, tries not to overreact in these situations when there's fine-tuning to legislation or case law. So our best recommendation is that if you're currently thinking about amending your CCNRs, this case won't stop you from doing that. But again, it will just be a good time for you to reflect and make sure that you're structuring your amendments in a way that they'll be, that they'll hold up in a court of law if challenged. So again, we're willing to assist your association in navigating these kinds of amendments and help you to put language in your amendments that'll protect you in the event that somebody does try to challenge these amendments based on that case. And also be sure to tune into our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy on Tuesday, June 21st, where we'll be discussing this case more in depth. Okay, so the next question is from a board member as well. Can an individual require the enforcement of a CCNR? if the majority of the association does not want to make the investment. For example, the requirement of four trees on each property. So I would have to see your CCNRs to to weigh in on this one. If your CCNRs allow this, then yes. But most CCNRs don't allow this and only allow the board to enforce CCNRs against an owner. Okay, next question is from a board member. Who should be signing contracts with the association? The president of the board, or the board's agent, the management company. So in our opinion, it's best to have the president sign a contract and then to have the the board approve and support this contract. So probably best to have the president sign. Okay, our next question is going to be from a community manager. I'm interested in legal ramifications surrounding short-term rental homes. This is definitely a hot topic. We could probably go on for an hour about the short-term rental issue. We urge you to check out some of our previous seminars that we've got on our website where Beth has discussed this issue at great length. And again, these can all be found on our website. So please check those out. We also have tons of free resources available on our firm's website that address the topic of short-term rentals, including legal ramifications and options. So Morgan will go ahead and share our cheat sheets in the chat. These cheat sheets are going to be how to effectively work with rental properties, enforcement of governing documents, and amending association documents, and implementing rental restrictions. So those help give you a better idea about these short-term rental issues. Okay, next question is from a board member. 
If a property is half in our association boundary and half in another association, is the entire property subject to our HOA rules or only the one half of the property that is within our HOA boundary? For instance, we have a property owner whose home is on a lot that is split right down the middle between our association and another. On our half, it is only his yard. The other half in the other HOA is the actual house. Can we find him in violation on his house, which is on the other HOA property, or only for a violation pertaining to the lot, which is in our association? Yikes. This sounds like an unusual situation. So your association can only enforce CCNRs on the lot that is on your association side of the property. Yes, you're going to want to enforce those CCNRs, but only with regard to the side that's on the association's property. Okay, next question is from a board member. Our condo community just had a new reserve study done. The reserve analysis report recommended raising assessments about 30% over our current rates to increase funds of our reserve account. I personally wouldn't vote for an increase that high in a single year. I'd like to know if you had a thought on a long-term plan for funding reserve accounts. Normally when we do raise assessments, it is $5 or $10 per unit or per year. This year, especially, we are trying to find a balance between members' financial resources, as well as the financial needs of an older condo community. So there are a number of ways to fund a reserve. You could do this by special assessment. You can do this by increasing the regular assessment by an amount and then funding the reserve by putting away money each month into the reserve. You can do this via a disclosure fee a transfer fee or a capital improvement fee. So there are lots of options. We recommend that you contact our office as our firm has helped a number of different associations in navigating this difficult problem. And we've also got a cheat sheet on this issue, which will be shared in the chat. It share reserves cheat sheet and transfer fee disclosure fee cheat sheet. So the next question is going to be from a board member. Explain the difference between CC, CC&Rs and bylaws. So the Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions, that's going to be CCNRs. The CCNRs are the enabling document that creates the covenants and restrictions that run with the land and are binding on all current and successive owners within the association. This document is recorded with the county recorder's office before an owner purchases a lot or a unit in a community association. And then by contrast, the bylaws are an internal document for the internal government and operation of the association. So the bylaws typically define composition, elections, and appointment of board of directors, and how-tos of running the association and the specifics. For more information on that and more definitions, please review our cheat sheet titled, What is a Community Association? And that will be in the chat now. Okay, next question is from a board member. The association has the right to form one or more subsidiary associations for any purpose deemed appropriate by the board. Currently, the board wants to create a sub-association for the townhomes, I believe it's THs, to manage a townhome's exterior maintenance as the townhome owners pay an additional $158 per month to cover these expenses. The board doesn't want the responsibility of all this deferred maintenance and wants to throw this back to the townhomes to fix the problem the board created. Is this a good idea given this scenario? So this is a bit of a complex question, actually outside of the scope of this first Friday event. So I'm unable to answer this question with the limited information provided. And I would just probably need to review the association's documents to give a better explanation and opinion on this. 
But at first, at first glance, this doesn't seem like something that we would be in favor of doing. Okay, next question is from a board member. How does an HOA research delinquent owner's credit history, status of first deed of trust, and financial condition prior to instituting legal action? So when a file is turned over to our firm for collection action, we will perform a full evaluation to determine the overall collectability of an owner. So this will include research with the county recorder's office to locate any outstanding deeds of trust and any other liens or encumbrances or judgments related to the owner and the property. It will also include confirming whether we conduct research to confirm whether this is a trustee sale. And then we conduct research with the county treasurer's office regarding the status of taxes. We'll run a search on the court's dockets, and this includes justice courts or superior courts. And that will be to determine if there are any pending or previous lawsuits against the owner. And then we also run a search with the bankruptcy court to confirm whether the owners have ever filed a bankruptcy or confirm that they are not currently under bankruptcy protection. And we also will perform a social media search just to get a little bit more information on these owners. So we will also be sharing a cheat sheet in the chat on secrets to effective collection. Okay, our next question is from a board member. How can we enforce having a homeowner paint their home? Letters have been sent and fines imposed. They have not responded to either. The paint and stucco have become quite degraded. Okay, so in light of um, recent supply chain issues, our firm has seen an uptick in painting violations as of late. We've also been told and confirmed via our own research that there's a major back order on paint. So this is just something that association should be keeping in mind, something you should be aware of and sympathetic to. However, if the association has given the owner ample time to bring the lot into compliance and notice an opportunity um, to be heard, it's likely time to turn this violation over to the association's attorney for legal action. So if this was turned over to our firm, we would start by sending a formal violation letter to the owner and finding the owner for the violation. And if the owner at that point didn't bring the lot into compliance, our firm would provide the association with litigation options, which would include, as we've discussed previously, filing a lawsuit in superior court, seeking a court order requiring the owner to cease from violating the association's documents and requiring that they paint the lot. And it would also seek a monetary judgment for the fines and attorney's fees incurred in um, enforcing the association's documents. And then the other option would be to file a petition with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. And then another point to consider is if the association's documents authorize the use of self-help, depending on the size of the area that needs repainting, obviously, it may be an effective remedy to help bring the lot into compliance. If the file was turned over to our firm, we would review the documents and, and the information given on the violation. And we would strategize and help come up with whether self-help would be an available option in that case. Okay, next question is from a board member. We are thinking of significantly increasing our monthly assessments for two years in lieu of a vote, which we know is time consuming and we suspect will fail for a one-time special assessment due to the immediate need to begin expensive roof work. We have bids already. What we need as much is upfront deposit money. Is there any way to incentivize owners to pay more sooner besides the obvious asking? We would explain cost per unit for the work and what that adds to current monthly. We already have some owners who prepay monthly assessments for a year. Okay, so the board can certainly explain the immediate need for capital and ask for owners to prepay their assessments, something that the board can do. By incentivize, I'm not sure what the question is referring to, possibly a 
discount on assessments if they prepay or something along those lines. If that's the case, we do not recommend that. Even if the association is able to have owners prepay their assessments, I would be concerned that spending those funds on roof repairs would end up leaving the association low on funds later in the year. So even though the board member in this question noted that they don't think a special assessment would be approved, I would encourage them to look into it more closely and also see if the governing documents allow the association to borrow funds for this purpose. So again, please feel free to reach out to our firm to discuss these options in more detail. Okay, next question is from a board member. How do we go about filing a claim with our insurance company that has a director's and officer's liability endorsement or clause? What would we need to prove? So based on this question, I assume that there are some allegations of wrongdoing that's prompting a potential claim. And if that's the case, the insurance company will wanna know what losses the association claims to have incurred, and it will want proof of those losses. This situation does sound potentially serious, so I recommend reaching out to legal counsel before proceeding. And Morgan is going to go ahead and share our firm's cheat sheet on insurance and associations. Okay, next question is from a board member. Our election was postponed by a month due to an error on the ballot. Should the current board being held over for a month be making decisions such as new manager or any decisions with a long-term effect? There are three seats out of five on the ballot. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your question. The answer to this is most likely going to be in the association's bylaws. And most bylaws state that directors will serve until their replacements are elected. So if your documents do say that, the current board will continue in place until the postponed election is held. The board will continue to have all of the powers that it currently holds. But given that there's a possibility of a major shift in composition on the board, if three brand new board members are elected, the current board may want to refrain from making major decisions, such as selecting a new management company, if it's possible to delay those kinds of decisions. Okay, next question is from a board member. If the HOA board violated open meeting law by publicizing a regular meeting less than 48 hours prior to the meeting, in this case, notice was sent 24 hours in advance via email and not notified on the property management company website, can all actions of the meeting be declared null and void? So the open meeting statute does not specify the consequences of a failure by the board to properly notice a hearing. I'm sorry, a board meeting. However, best practices, in our opinion, would be to formalize any actions taken at the meeting at a subsequent properly noticed board meeting. And Morgan will go ahead and share our cheat sheet on board meetings and open meeting law. Okay, next question is from a board member. We have a homeowner that is ignoring our ACC's warnings for being out of compliance with their landscape, excessive weeds in the front yard. Process-wise, our next step is to implement a fine. We have read your cheat sheet on how difficult it is to collect fines and your suggested alternatives in working with the homeowner in lieu of fining. We are leaning toward personally contacting the homeowner. How should that conversation go? How can we be convincing in getting them to clean up the weeds? If we were to end up finding them, what is the best way to get them to pay? Okay, great question. So reaching out to the homeowner personally is probably a good first step. I'd suggest asking questions to try to figure out what's keeping the owner from cleaning up his lot. For example, are there physical limitations hindering the owners? And just questions along those lines to get a little bit more information. If nothing comes from that conversation or if nothing changes and the yard is still in violation, then we would recommend turning that matter over to our firm to send a formal violation letter. Oftentimes, receiving a letter from the attorney 
will be enough and it will motivate the owners to fix the problem. Alternatively, associations could exercise self-help if that's authorized in their in the association's documents and clean up the yard on their own and then bill the cost of doing so back to the owner. And then one last thought regarding fines. They would be appropriate, excuse me, they would be appropriate in a situation like this in an attempt to get compliance. And that is the association's main goal here, getting the yard cleaned up versus collecting the fine amounts. The board could levy fines and then offer to waive them once the lot is brought into compliance. So that's just an option that the board has as well. If they're just attempting to get compliance, then a fine might be a good way to do that. But it's always possible to waive these fines at a later time. Okay, next question is from an owner. I'm an owner in a gated condo community in Chandler. As an owner, what are some of my rights with regard to our board? For example, when the budget is being prepared each year, should we as owners be able to ask questions before it is approved? Okay, so pursuant to ARS section 33-1243D, except as provided in the declaration, within 30 days after adoption of any proposed budget for the condominium, the board of directors shall provide a summary of the budget to all the unit owners. Unless the board of directors is expressly authorized in the declaration to adopt and amend budgets from time to time, any budget or amendment shall be ratified by the unit owners in accordance with the procedures set forth in this subsection. If ratification is required, the board of directors shall set a date for a meeting of the unit owners to consider ratification of the budget not fewer than 14, nor more than 30 days after mailing of the summary. Unless at that meeting, a majority of all the unit owners or any larger vote specified in the declaration rejects, the budget is ratified, whether or not a quorum is present. If the proposed budget is rejected, the periodic budget, last ratified by the unit owners, shall be continued until such time as the unit owners ratify a subsequent budget proposed by the board of directors. So as such, the rights of the membership with regard to the budget is going to be dependent on the provisions in the governing documents. So we suggest that you look there. Okay, next question is also from an owner wanting to know what law governs the need for two board of management signatures on any official association documents. What is the consequence of not having two signatures on a document signed solely by one board member without the knowledge of other board members? So the bylaws will typically govern who must sign a document or checks. So I would suggest checking the bylaws first as a first step. But generally speaking, the president of an association may be authorized to sign a document like a contract, um, but the board would have needed to have voted to approve the contract first by a majority vote. So these types of decisions and votes should hopefully be documented in your board's meeting minutes. So you could also look there as a start. Okay, next question is going to be from a board member. We have a section eight renter in one of our condos there has been visual damage as well as hoarding. This unit is in foreclosure with a bank trustee. The police have been called and reached the condo door. Do we have standing to inspect the damages? So please, in this situation, check your governing documents and consult with your firm's attorney before entering a unit. This is very important. Even if the documents do authorize entry into a unit, we urge the board to exercise caution as doing so can be potentially risky to board members or their agents who are entering the unit. If there's a suspected emergency condition, for example, a water leak that could damage other units, 
then the need to enter the unit would be more urgent, of course. But if the board is just trying to assess some damage and the tenant may no longer be living in the unit soon anyway, then I would say the need to enter is potentially less urgent. Additionally, please continue to call police. However, if any illegal activity is suspected, in or, so contact the police if any illegal activity is suspected in or around the unit. That's the step you'll want to take. Okay, this question is from a homeowner. What is your advice on putting up political HOA signs until the law kicks in? Okay, so until HB 2158 becomes effective, community associations should be complying with current statutes regarding political signage, and those are going to be located at ARS section 33-1261 for condominiums and ARS section 33-1808 for planned communities. Okay, and it looks like our last question, one board, and this question is from a board member, one board member has become so contentious and uncooperative that I'm resigning as president. Is a simple email sufficient for my resignation? So I'm sorry to hear that serving on the board has become so frustrating for you that you need to resign. Your association's bylaws may spell out the procedure for, for resignation. Oftentimes bylaws will say that a director can resign effective immediately or at a date in the future. So either way, an email resignation would probably be sufficient. Okay, and that has been all of our questions. So thank you all for joining us today for our firm's first Friday virtual event. We had over 37 attendees on Zoom and 10 live viewers on Facebook Live. Please also remember to join us for our firm's 2022 virtual HOA and condo academy class number six on Tuesday, June 21st from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. The topic, as we've mentioned before, is how to amend association CCNRs, bylaws, and rules. And our next live virtual first Friday event is Friday, July 1st. So we hope to see you later this month and everybody have a great weekend. Thank you. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 